0: You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 21. Bambi. A translucent slide about a yard long, bearing my surname in capital letters. When I house-sat for my brother Andrew in his brick-lane flat nearly four decades ago, it's joined an identical slide already blue-tacked on the bedroom wall. There can't be that many siblings who, a couple of years apart, both sat on their respective university challenge teams. Sometime during the middle of my second year studying drama at Hull University, I was sitting in the student union coffee bar with my friend Gary. They're holding a quiz in ten minutes to see who gets on the university challenge team, he said. Are you coming along? No, I'll give it a miss. Oh, come on, we're both bound to be in with a chance. Oh, all right then, I'll come. The upshot was that Gary came nowhere and I was made captain. I should mention at this point that my family has some form in the field of television panel games. As far back as 1958, my father briefly made the tabloids as the first jackpot winner on Granada TV's Criss Cross Quiz. In the 1980s, my brother John lasted a whole week on Countdown, while researching an article about game shows. And then there's my brother Andrew. He made it to the finals of Mastermind, 15-1 to and Brain of Britain, before sweeping up a large chunk of money on the chase about a year ago. My mother, who always finished the Guardian crossword before her morning tea got cold, never felt the need to join in with this testosterone-fuelled ego fest. Good for her. A month-long strike by ITV technicians put any recording of University Challenge on hold and it wasn't until late in 1979 that the message came through that we were to be at the Granada Studios in Manchester on a Wednesday in November. The producer introduced the contestants to each other and to the host, Bamba Gascoigne. His handshake was like a dead fish, after which he entirely blanked the whole team, preferring to enter into an animated conversation with the lads from Queen's College, Cambridge. As a Magdalen alumnus, he was no doubt keen to catch up on whether they still gathered at Jesus Green or for any gossip about the St. John's May Ball. One of the Queen's students, a tall and terribly well spoken and immaculately dressed man, asked me, for some reason, if we all went to university straight from school? I did, but I can't speak for the others, I replied. He considered my answer carefully. I'd never have guessed that this very proper and well-mannered undergraduate had spent 3 months prior to his admission to Cambridge at Her Majesty's pleasure in Pucklechurch church remand centre for credit card fraud. Listeners in the know will by now have guessed that this member of the Queen's team was Stephen Fry, making his television debut. We lost against Queen's. Not badly, our score crept into three figures, but my 15 minutes of fame ended abruptly. All I can say about this is that the next time you're watching University Challenge and laughing at the team, still on 30 points, with five minutes to go, consider how nearly everything depends on their speed with the buzzer for those all-important starter questions. I remember pressing the buzzer, and nearly every time enduring the pain of a Queen's opponent getting their first. It's not so much a case of, give us some easy ones, Bambi, as, you snooze, you lose. But thinking back, it was more about the programme itself. In common with Coronation Street and Blue Peter, University Challenge had been on TV Ever since I could remember. And being on the set with Gascoigne asking the questions and Jim Pope yelling, Diamond, Hull! when I pressed the buzzer was too strange an experience to enable my best quiz form. Whatever else, I would have liked to have won, but it wasn't to be. Before leaving the Granada studio, an underling handed me my diamond name slide rolled up and secured with a rubber band. The team selection and supporters coach to and from Manchester was organised by Hull University's Rag Society. I honestly don't know if rag societies and rag weeks are still a thing. All I knew was that every year they performed a number of joyless stunts involving custard pies and produced an annual magazine stuffed with racist jokes, apparently excused by it all being in the name of charity. One of their bigwigs collared me just before our coach home arrived. ''Are you sorry you lost?'' he asked. ''Not really. It was the luck of the questions and who got to the buzzer first. Just one of those things.'' ''What?'' he yelled. ''Didn't you want to win?'' I stepped away, hoping I didn't have to sit near him on the coach home. So my first ever appearance on national television was not a disaster but neither was there much to celebrate. The understandable pain of losing, however, would continue down the years, because every time a cheap clip show or career retrospective hones in on Stephen Fry, there I am, with unruly hair and a midnight blue shirt, silently losing to Queen's. This clip is invariably followed by Fry's appearance as Lord Snot, representing Footlights College Oxbridge. That infamous, and probably the best, episode of The Young Ones makes great play of Bamber-Gascoigne's bias towards our two oldest universities. But the bigger question I'm sometimes asked, having been a team member decades ago, is this. Are the questions under the Jeremy Paxman era easier? To which the answer has to be yes and no. The year ITV transmitted that episode... 1980, 70,000 people graduated with bachelor degrees. The figure for 2022 is over half a million. On my course, I believe I was the only undergraduate in my year not to have attended a selective or fee-paying school. So at the time of Bamber-Gascoigne presenting the show, students in 1980 were more likely to have read Virgil and Juvenal, maybe in the original Latin, or to have learned about classical history or rhetoric. Watch the show now, and there are a lot more questions about science, pop culture and modern politics, reflecting the wider sectors of society now attending uni. And from my armchair, I now get to snark at them along the lines of It's Chicory Tip, you idiot! Or Martin Amis, in 1964... I encountered Stephen Fry many years later at, of all things, a Passover dinner. And over the lamb shank and bitter herbs, we reminisced and pieced together the events of that autumn day in 1979. Telling him about my blink-and-you'll-miss-him role in various clip shows, he was quick to remind me that the clip in question shows him stumbling over a question after pressing the buzzer, But Gascoigne always tended to go easy on the Oxbridge teams, didn't he? Fry demurred and I changed the subject. Finally, about a decade ago, my wife's friend Sandra brought her two young daughters round to our house and we watched Starter for Ten on Netflix, a fairly generic rom-com vehicle for James McAvoy. The film is set in the mid-1980s and centres on the McAvoy character's appearance on University Challenge and the life-changing realisations the experience brings. Sandra's seven-year-old daughter turned to her mother. Is this a film about the olden days? Tempest Fugit, as Bamba would have probably said. Perhaps it's time to let the whole thing go. That was Bambi, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 22. Beryl. It's probably my favourite family photo, perhaps my favourite photo of all time. It doesn't simply languish in an album or in a desktop folder full of scans. The photo has been enlarged and framed and proudly hangs on our living room wall. It's a black and white group shot of Dad with four friends. All five of them look incredibly cool, as cool and stylish in fact as the late 1940s Paris where it was snapped. On the left is Muriel Dobkin, later to become PA and gatekeeper to Larry Parnes and then Lionel Bart, perched on a window ledge with that morning's newspaper. On the right, sporting a twin set and strappy shoes, and in deep intellectual discussion with my father stands Beryl Lund, famous for 15 minutes as Red Beryl. In 1948, the British government was keen not to be outdone by the United States in its anti-communist fervour. Despite being elected by a landslide on a broadly socialist platform, despite bringing the major utilities into public ownership, despite even the creation of the NHS, the Attlee government of the 1940s were keen cold warriors. They wanted to purge our public services of all communist influence and to send a suitably belligerent message to their Kremlin playmasters that Reds are not welcome here. But there was a snag, namely, what communists? They pored over the records of government-employed civil servants, academics and the military only to find a backbone of stout yeoman patriotism running through the entire body politic. Eventually, and no doubt with much relief, they stumbled upon Beryl Lund, a junior clerk working at the Ministry of Supply in Whitehall, the branch of government that ensured our three armed forces had enough bullets, tarpaulins and helmets for its personnel, and brill cream for its fighter pilots. By day... Beryl beavered away with quiet efficiency in the service of His Majesty's Government, and by night she sparkled on stage at Unity Theatre in London's Islington. It was her involvement with the latter which caused her problems. Listeners to earlier episodes may have already learned something about Unity. It was a small but expertly run theatre company which specialised in producing plays and entertainment from a left-wing perspective. It is important to emphasise that unity wasn't affiliated to any party, be it Labour or Communist. In fact, as is still common on the left, it made a point of criticising any aspect of the political left if it took a wrong, or in too many cases, brutal turn. And unity didn't pull its punches over the Labour government of the late 1940s. 1948 was the year Unity staged a hugely successful satirical review called What's Left, which aimed its laser-like glare at the failure of the Labour government to fulfil its post-war promise. The national newspaper critics raved, the show sold out, and the audience for Unity expanded beyond its lefty catchment to become the epitome of chic. Its short run was extended, and What's Left still occupied the Unity Theatre stage a hundred performances later. We should remember that this was some years before the likes of John Osborne and Arnold Wesker supposedly rewrote the rule book of rebellious theatre. So a show like What's Left filled a cultural vacuum for those tiring of Coward, Rattigan and Old Witch farces, and sent a stage every night, singled out by the critics for particular praise, was Miss Beryl Lund, junior clerk at the Ministry of Supply. I cannot speak for the actions of some of the more outre overseas regimes of the past, but I strongly doubt whether in the UK, prior to this, a critically acclaimed comedy show had ever resulted in anyone being singled out as a threat to national security. Whatever the ins and outs, once Beryl's connection with Unity came to light... It gave the British government and the security services sufficient grounds to suspend her from her job. They didn't mince words either, telling the press that in belonging to the caste of what's left, she associated with the Communist Party in such a way as to raise legitimate doubts as to her reliability. I found this quote within the main headline article in the London Evening Standard of October 5th, 1948. The article goes on to say, Miss Lund, who is slight and brunette, still speaks with a Yorkshire accent. And this gives some indication as to why it became, for a short time, headline news, why it inspired newspaper cartoons by the likes of Lowe and Vicky, and why it even led to questions in Parliament. An objectively pretty, intelligent woman from Bradford finds herself thrown out of a job she's been doing competently and reliably for nearly a decade and for no other reason than a government trying to look as if it's doing something about the Red Menace. Beryl never made a secret of her political affiliations, either to friends or work colleagues. And while all this was going on, at the top of the same security apparatus that deemed Beryl a threat, Kim Philby, Guy Burgess and Lord knows who else were happily hiding behind their Eton and Westminster old boy networks to work for the KGB. Following Beryl's suspension and the press ridicule of those behind it, the government did what it usually does under such circumstances and quietly fudged the issue into oblivion. Instead of sacking her, they moved Beryl to the Ministry of Education and gave her a lowly filing job in the windowless basement of the Science Museum. She left the role soon after and travelled to Italy with a group of friends stopping off at Paris on the way where the photo in question was snapped. Once in Rome, she got a job singing in a nightclub for a while and hooked up with her future husband, Valio, an erstwhile officer in the Italian Partisans. I first learned the story of Red Beryl on my 13th birthday, spent with my family at Beryl and Valio's house in Hertfordshire, where several scrapbooks full of press clippings and photos brought back to life Beryl's own little corner of the Cold War. By this time, they ran a husband and wife art direction business and agency, mainly providing illustrators and designers for comics and teenage magazines. And, for better or worse, in this capacity, Beryl has been cited as responsible, back in the 1950s, for inventing the live-action cartoon strips with speech bubbles seen in magazines such as My Guy and Jackie. A few decades later, in 1991, Billowin, the former artistic director of Unity Theatre, found time between playing Compo in Last of the Summer Wine to relaunch the company. True to their roots, they staged a satirical review to raise funds for the new Unity and asked me to donate a song, I already had a bottom drawer full of songs rejected by my group the Drelon Underground and gave them a number I was rather fond of, a rock-and-roll satire on private medicine called I Sold My Heart to Bupa. It was nice to see one of my favourite cast-offs performed live by someone else. But it was even nicer to see Beryl, now in her seventies, and looking as bright and charismatic as she did four decades earlier, downstage and singing backing vocals. She was still giving interviews about her time as Red Beryl well into this century, still bitter about her treatment at the hands of the British government and railing against the continued hypocrisy of the establishment. The last surviving cast member of What's Left, she died in 2018, aged 96. That was Beryl. Written and read by Matthew Diamond If you enjoyed this then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you next time Listening to the Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 23, Ghosts to Houseplants. A single, heavily scuffed volume of the Junior World Encyclopedia from the early 1960s, bought by some or other elderly relative for my brothers. In 16 volumes, it encompassed the entirety of human knowledge, or at least the human knowledge considered suitable and digestible for a mid-20th century child. I remember the Junior World Encyclopedia sitting on my brother's bookshelf in their shared bedroom. There it was, as dog-eared and well-used as the adjacent Biggles, Jennings and my brother's favourite, Gerald Durrell. By the age of eight... I joined them in eagerly devouring the contents from aardvark to army, not to mention paracute into quicksand. I've managed to hold on to one solitary volume, Ghosts to Houseplants, and remember being fascinated by its four-page pictorial timeline of world history, beginning with the Paleolithic era and climaxing with the launch of Sputnik. Its final frame provides a drawing of a man in a loincloth attempting to make fire with the poignant caption, In some remote parts of the world, there are primitive people still living in the Stone Age. But after reading and re-reading its contents, I soon became frustrated by these 16 slim volumes. I knew that there were better encyclopedias out there, and my holy grail was a Britannica, or at least a children's Britannica. Noting my frustration, my parents returned from an antique buying spree one Sunday with a copy of Arthur Mee's Children's Encyclopedia from sometime in the 1930s. I'll leave aside Arthur Mee's British exceptionalism and casual racism, a common feature in popular reference books of this time. I'll ignore the fact that the entries were not placed alphabetically. I'll even pass over Mee's strange obsession with classical erotic art. In truth, the children's encyclopaedia was just plain dull. Worse than that, with sections entitled Simple Learning Made Easy for Very Little People and Such Like, it was cringe-makingly twee, in a way you only find in children's books of yore. I wanted something better. I wanted a Britannica. For those who don't remember, the Encyclopaedia Britannica was advertised in Sunday magazines and sold on easy terms, with the first volume always free. I tried telling my parents that for the price of 60 cigarettes per week, we could have the entirety of human knowledge at our fingertips, and their youngest son would grow up to be a genius. But to no avail. If you need one that badly, you can use the copy in the local library for nothing, said Mum. Such was the commercial thrust of Britannica that they commanded whole battalions of salesmen, touting sets of encyclopaedias door-to-door. In 1981, I fell into conversation with a regional sales manager for Britannica, who tried to recruit me. I wasn't remotely interested, but curiosity got the better of me as to how they persuaded a family of modest means to part with several months' wages for a set of books. Simple, he said. I sit down with the husband and wife on the sofa side-by-side in the living room, It's always best to have them both together. Then I point to a child's photo on the mantelpiece and say, How much would you pay for your son or your daughter to pass an extra two O-levels? I then ask them how much they're paying to rent their video recorder, and they say, Wouldn't you want your children to spend their Sunday evenings learning about Greek philosophy rather than watching a tape of Mad Max 2? Never underestimate the power of monetizing parental guilt you don't often see sets of encyclopedias anymore except in the reference section of public libraries unread and gathering dust britannica printed their final hard copy set in 2010 by which time sales had fallen from their 1990 peak of 120,000 a year to 6,000 it still exists in digital form online available through a paid subscription, the demise of its physical presence was far less traumatic, or even noticed, than that of the New Musical Express, or the Argos catalogue, or even Exchange and Bart. In fact, an article in Slate magazine, at the time it ceased printing, wished the publication good riddance. The writer of this column didn't mince words either when he wrote, Looking back, It's obvious that of all the gimmicky things my parents bought, these books were their biggest mistake. The most expensive, the most useless, and the most exploitative." But the elephant in the room here, the punch that dealt printed encyclopedias their killer blow, is of course Wikipedia. It's the seventh most visited site on the internet, well ahead of TikTok, Reddit, more popular even than Pornhub. The only not-for-profit site in the top ten, it is now the go-to place for a search for schoolwork, and to settle those all-important pub discussions on who scored in what match. I even used it just now to confirm the declining sales figures for Britannica. To give you an idea of why printed encyclopedias were no match for Wiki, the site even has its own slightly boastful entry entitled, Wikipedia, Size in Volumes which gives a running update of how many Britannica-sized tomes, minus graphics, would result should anyone be foolish enough to print the whole thing out. Today that figure stands at 3,228 volumes. It's understandable, really. Wikipedia has a lot of articles similar to Britannica on countries of the world, great figures from history, or matters of science and art. But to pick a purely random example off the top of my head, Britannica never saw fit to publish anything as trivial as an entry on the British rock band Mungo Jerry. This entry features the band's history, changes in lineup, and a discography. The page also links to a separate entry for Ray Dorset, Mungo Jerry's mutton-chopped lead singer, who we learn has been a Freemason for forty-five years and suffers from irritable bowel syndrome. Fascinating stuff. In its heyday, Britannica attracted a lot of flack from academics for giving the impression that the sum of human knowledge could be found in two rows of doorstep books on a family shelf. There was, they said, an imperialist subtext to encyclopedias which suggested that, like Harrods or the British Museum, if we don't include it, or stock it, or exhibit it, it's not worth considering. And now, with the mountain of sites on the World Wide Web numbering in billions, there is still the danger, with regard to human knowledge, that unless it's online, it doesn't exist. With future technological advances, it is possible that one day everything, everywhere, will be available to us online all at once. And on the day this happens, if it happens... We might all wish we were still living in the Stone Age. That was Ghosts to Houseplants, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Hello, Matthew here. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Souvenir Shop. And just to let you know that it might help make more sense of what you're about to hear if you click on the Instagram link in the notes to the podcast. And now, on with the story. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 24. The Invitation Just over two decades ago, around the time of his death, it seemed as if half the newspaper columnists and commentators in Britain were writing about my brother John, musing over their friendship, or replaying their best John Diamond anecdote. The latter usually began with, One evening, John and I were propping up the bar of the Groucho Club when... Which means that the hacks in question were painting from a very limited palette. But you'll forgive me anyway if this is a subject I've approached with the trepidation and uncertainty of one having to compete with the professionals. So where do I begin? Out of curiosity, and to prove how technologically down I am with the kids, I asked ChatGPT to give me a thousand words on John. In amongst the random blather and awkward attempts at readable prose, it included this completely nonsensical gem. He later moved to the BBC, where he worked as a correspondent on the flagship current affairs programme Panorama. During this time at Panorama, Diamond covered a range of stories, including the miners' strike of 1984-85 and the aftermath of the Hillsborough disaster in 1989. Besides learning that it'll be some time before machines replace writers, I realised that this is something I'll need to do for myself however painful. Should I bite the bullet and begin with his darker side, or should I leave that for a later episode? Perhaps it would be better to start somewhere else, somewhere less familiar to past and present members of the Groucho. The invitation to my 18th birthday party was the talk of my friends. 45 years later, some of those friends still have it in a box or a scrapbook occasionally dusting it off to show people an original piece of John Diamond artwork. An early trifle from a young man with an as-yet unspotted talent. We all thought he would make it as a cartoonist first, not a journalist. For years, taking in John's teens and early twenties, an ever sillier cartoon greeting marked family birthdays, anniversaries or celebrations. For instance, just before turning 17, Two things happened to me. I received an offer from three universities to study drama and I qualified as a scuba diver. My birthday greeting from John that year was a stand-up cartoon figure of me as Hamlet holding Yorick's skull, dressed in a mask, snorkel and flippers over the doublet and hose, all submerged in a jam jar filled with water. I can now see the influences in his work, there is a bit of Ralph Steadman there, plus a dash of Bill Tidy. But as John admitted at the time, his cartooning idol was Paul Sample. Unless you're into motorbikes, it's unlikely you will have heard of Sample or his cartoon alter-ego Ogri. For decades, Ogri was one of the main reasons people bought Bike Magazine. While some cartoonists, Thurber and Larry come to mind, created their worlds with the fewest possible strokes of the pen. Samples work is all about the detail. Read an ogre strip thoroughly and it's a lot to take in. Go back to the same strip later and you'll notice yet another dog pissing against the wall or the old bearded biker casually rolling a cig with one hand. I don't know what 18th birthday parties are like now because I don't get to hang out with any 18 year olds. Occasionally, I see some or other reality TV show depicting brats with overindulgent parents hiring stretched limos and dressing up as either bejeweled Southside drug dealers or members of the Bullington Club. But I doubt whether these are the norm. My eighteenth followed the pattern of most parties then and probably now. It started slowly, descended into chaos and ended with three crashes in the kitchen, opening the last Watney's Party 7 with a hammer and a screwdriver. Only the invitation set it apart. It's very much of its time, very 1977. This was the summer of punk, so naturally its followers were ripe for a good old piss-take. It was also the era when Time Out duked it out with the NME weekly for the title of coolest magazine on the planet. There are references to Dorothy Parker and Picasso and Malcolm Muggeridge, all suffused with the tacky's 1950s vibe which permeated that much-maligned decade, regardless of who or what was in fashion. Looking at the invitation now, it's intriguing how prophetic some of the references are. In one frame, we see a copy of Time Out magazine with the headline, We expose the Mother Care rip-off, man! and at the bottom, a fake quote by the philosopher A.J. Eyre. John, at the time teaching drama and English in a rough hackney comprehensive, had no idea that five years later he would be the consumer editor of Time Out. Nor did he imagine that a decade after that he would marry Eyre's stepdaughter. It's also scrappy, with crossings out and a few misspellings. Note the birthday with an inserted A bearing the hallmark of a piece of art dashed off in one go. And, like the best comedy, a lot of its content was there purely to amuse its author. I mean, come on! How many school kids in 1977 or since knew that André Simon was a wine expert? John was always a man of impulse, never too impoverished to spend a tenner between the front door and the bus stop. But he couldn't hide his obsessive streak once something or someone caught his fancy. In the early 1980s, he gave me a lift to Ilford, and during the ride, he casually asked me my opinion of his latest favourite, the singer-songwriter Tom Waits. "'I am not really a fan,' I said. "'What do you mean you're not a fan? He's a genius!' "'He's a bit too obvious for me,' I said. "'It's too easy to see the workings behind his whole throaty barfly stick. "'He pulled up and parked. "'Listen to this, then. What's not to like?' "'After three tracks I had my answer. "'Everything. Absolutely everything. "'I ended up arriving half an hour late at my girlfriend's house "'because John insisted we sit in a lay-by on the North Circular Road, "'listening to Waite's album Swordfish Trombone, "'until, aware that time was getting on, I agreed with him. "'It was this obsessive side which propelled him after he switched to journalism. Via our Uncle Seymour, he got a junior researcher job on a subscription investment magazine, the kind you used to see in a newspaper small ad saying, I made a million on the property market and so can you, and he was off and running. Within a month or two, after exaggerating his extensive journalistic gravitas to various newspaper editors, he was a regular columnist on the Sunday Times. If he displayed the same amount of chutzpah in front when it came to his artwork, I'm certain we would have seen John's cartoons in print. He still occasionally penned them for family birthdays and special favours. Somewhere I have the Monopoly board he designed on his Apple Mac for Mum's 60th, which faithfully records every street she lived on, every place she worked, and the four London stations, Bethnal Green, Whitechapel, Harms Park and Debden, she used the most. The evening after John died, there was an informal gathering round at his house. We crowded round the TV to watch Newsnight, and some of his friends laughed as various media talking heads duly trotted out their kind words, knowing that John's opinion of them certainly wasn't always reciprocated. Next to me, I overheard the head of BBC One discussing with the editor of The Times his legacy. And how best to sum him up. For the first time on that terrible day, I felt a small spark of contentment. I don't need one, I thought. I already have my own legacy, on a single sheet of A4. Because it wasn't simply an invitation. It was a promise. That was The Invitation, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 25. The 78. A 78 RPM copy of Shakespeare was a Playboy, written and performed by Ronald Franco with Monty Crick at the piano and released in the 1930s. I have no way of playing this record at home, but a bowlerised performance of the song can be seen on the Pathé website. Franco gleefully runs through various indiscretions in the Bard's plays, concluding at the end of each verse that Shakespeare had a dirty mind. The BBC, of course, immediately banned the song. When we think of great performing dynasties, the names that come to mind might be the Barrymores or the Redgraves, in the case of Franco's family, his aunt was a mistress of Henry Irving. His wife, Renée Roberts, played Miss Gadsby, one of the two ladies in Faulty Towers. His daughter, Rosemary, played June Whitfield's best friend in Terry and June. And, to bring us right up to date, his grandson, Sam Bain, co-wrote Peep Show, Fresh Meat and Babylon. Now that's what I call a dynasty. Franco was a huge star in his day a wit with the manner of Noel Coward and the humour of Max Miller. For most of his career, like Miller or Round the Horn decades later, he managed to keep his career just the right side of risque for the BBC to either accept or not understand his material. But Shakespeare was a playboy, proved too near the knuckle for Broadcasting House. Despite the thrill of possessing a record too hot for the BBC Light programme, I am also aware that Franco, like the vast majority of popular comedians of the past, has been largely forgotten. So, by way of a tribute to a lost comedy hero, it's time to relate the only instance of censorship I ever experienced in my own largely forgotten comedy career. In 1994, the Trades Union Congress celebrated its 125th anniversary with a gala evening of entertainment, food and booze. Even though its wings were now heavily clipped and membership down after 15 years of Thatcher and Major, it was still seen as a milestone worth celebrating. At the time, my group, the Dreylon Underground, was a regular feature of the variety shows at the Theatre Royal Stratford East and it was through them that I was asked to write a special song for the occasion. The request came at very short notice, and, what with having to write, arrange and rehearse the song, I took the easy way out for any comic songwriter with a deadline. I reached for W.S. Gilbert, still the Mozart of comic lyricists, We are the very model of a modern labour movement, a century and a quarter, but there's still room for improvement. We thought about a central body until 1868 that finally decided on the best way to amalgamate. I then proceeded to detail its affiliates all the way from the Transport and General, with nearly a million members, down to the humble nine-member Sheffield Wallshire workers, along with its giant leaders from the past, Walter Citrine, Vic Feather, Joe Gormley, Rodney Bickerstaff and the rest. But I also knew that, as with any mass movement, there were a few bad apples. People who didn't share the movement's progressive values but couldn't be ignored. There's Chapel and there's Robins, and non entity called Tibet, and the government in power is forever in their debit. For those less familiar with the Byzantine history of the British trade union movement, the TUC expelled Frank Chapel's Electricians Union after they scabbed for Rupert Murdoch at Wapping. Alf Robins was a firebrand Labour cabinet minister, and, many said, a future prime minister. In 1961, he turned gamekeeper by becoming the ennobled boss of the National Coal Board, and is now largely remembered for having sold his comrades down the river, and for failing to prevent the Aberfan disaster. In his pre-Chinkford skinhead days, Norman Tebbit was a militant shop steward in the pilots' union, BALPA. With a few days to go before the gig, my friends at the Theatre Royal saw the lyrics and gave them a big thumbs up. Then, at about 10.30 that night, I got a phone call. Hi Matthew, it's Brendan Barber here. I hope it's not too late. Brendan Barber was the Assistant General Secretary of the TUC, a leader-in-waiting. I couldn't work out why a Union bigwig would want to call me at this hour, but there was a tone in his voice of someone who'd drawn the short straw. Listen, Matthew, we've had a look at the song you wrote, and it's brilliant. We all love it. Thank you, I said, knowing there was probably a but coming. It's been passed around the office, and we've been laughing all day. But there's one line that might be a problem. OK, I said, grabbing a pen and paper. "'The thing is, is that Frank Chapel's union is just about to amalgamate with the engineering union, "'so they're back in the fold, and he'll almost certainly be there on the night.' "'While he spoke I scribbled furiously. "'And although you're dead right about Alf Robins, he's now very ill, "'although Lady Robins will definitely be there as a guest of honour. "'Fine,' I said. "'Will Norman Tebbett be coming?' "'Oh, I very much doubt it. You can say what you like about him.' Sorry Matthew, it's not a big deal, but this is an important night for us and we'd rather not see anything bitchy about it in the Daily Mail. OK Brendan, I'll rewrite and send it over. I said goodbye, put the phone down, and shouted to no one in particular what I really wanted to tell Mr soon-to-be leader of the Trade Union Congress. If the TUC cared more about its members and less about the sodding Daily Mail, We might not be in the bloody mess we're in now. And then I rewrote the line. The event went well, with music, comedy, a lavish buffet and the cheap wine common to such occasions. Standing on stage singing our Gilbert and Sullivan parody, I couldn't help being mesmerised by the occupants of the VIP table just in front of the stage area. Looking much older than in their heyday, sat Hugh Scanlon, Jack Jones, Len Murray and Clive Jenkins, titans of 1970s trade union militancy, capable, we were told, of bringing the country to a standstill with one phone call. Sitting with this very genial group of old men was Edward Heath, the former Tory Prime Minister, at the receiving end of some of the worst of those calls, and whose battles with the unions led to his downfall. I still wonder what they were discussing, imagining a bunch of genial retired generals from opposing sides refighting long-forgotten campaigns. After the show, I stood chatting with Bernie, my bandmate, as a diminutive elderly couple approached us. We loved your song, you're very talented people, said the man in a thick Glaswegian accent. After exchanging some more pleasantries they left us, and Bernie turned to see that I was beaming. Who is that? she asked. Mick McGahee, I replied. Bernie is Australian, so she could be forgiven for not recognising McGahee, the communist former Scottish miners' boss once dubbed the most dangerous man in Britain. This had turned into a fascinating event, like attending a Beatles fan convention for politics nerds. Brendan Barber, the man whose concern about my lyrics necessitated a late-night phone call, retired as General Secretary of the Trade Union Congress in 2012. The following year, he received the Knighthood for Services to Industrial Relations. I'm sure the Daily Mail was delighted. That was The 78, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not like Leave a review even, and subscribe on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.